0: Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here again with you. If you'd like to uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 John, uh, chapter 1, that's, uh, you turn to the back of the Bible, hit Revelation, and then go forward a book or two, and you'll find 1 John there. 1 John, uh, chapter 1. And I'm reading from uh, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons why people uh, start off examining and exploring uh, Christian faith. It might have been your parents, uh, your family. Uh, they were the reason that you heard about Jesus from an early age. Uh, you learnt it from home. Uh, you grew up in a Christian family and they started you off. Uh, conversely, your family might have been a tough and a difficult place. Uh, the herd of broken relationships all around you made you curious about your Christian friends and their different life. And in the Christian church, you've you've caught a glimpse of a new family, a place to belong and to be loved. Uh, and from that beginning you started to explore and examine this new community to find out about Jesus. Perhaps it's a quest for meaning and significance. You know, a frustration with the sort of randomness and the accidentalness of the world. Life presented merely as atoms bouncing against other atoms. There must be more. There must be a creator behind the creation. Maybe that's how you started off. Or there's the, the scary reality of death. Is there life beyond the grave for my loved ones? If God will rescue me from this really scary situation, then I will... Some people start off exploring the Christian faith because of death. All sorts of reasons why people begin to find out what it means to be a Christian. A crisis, a question, a challenge, a confrontation. But whatever the trigger, whatever the starting point, a proper consideration of the Christian faith will lead everyone to Jesus and his death on the cross. That's the center, that's the core, that's the hub, with implications leading out from there that touch all sorts of aspects of our lives, including those issues that that might have started us off exploring. In the cross, we find a holy God rescuing human beings from their most fundamental and basic problem, sin. There are many important issues, many important aspects to the Christian life, but the critical matter is the damning reality of our sinful rebellion against a Holy God. The Bible has so much to say about sin. Story after story, illuminating our sinfulness. Commandments and instructions, explaining our sinful predicament. Prophets and preachers pointing out our sinful actions and motives. Genesis to Revelation is essentially an account of God's response to sinful human rebellion. And the climax of the Bible is Jesus on the cross. As our substitute, as our champion, he takes our place and he bears the punishment for sin that we deserve. That would seem to be an obvious reading of the Bible. So alarm bells should be ringing when we hear sin is being treated as something small, a minor issue, a tiny little problem, when sin is minimized or downplayed, when sin is relegated to, oh, that's an old way of thinking, or that's a problem of immaturity. Because when we get sin wrong, we fail to understand who God is, and we fail to understand who we are. See, when we attempt to dodge or duck the reality of sin, we forget about the holiness of God, and we misdiagnose our own condition to make little or light of sin is a contemporary problem happening in some New Zealand churches today. It's a problem that's cropped up time and time again in church history, and it was a problem for even the earliest Christian churches. And this morning, that's the issue that we're looking at in John's letter. Now, this letter of 1 John, let me just paint a picture of that for you. Uh, for contemporary Christians, it's a bit of a puzzler. You see, there's some great and wonderful promises that come to us from this New Testament letter, words that many Christians know and love. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. God is love. Whoever lives in love, love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. When we cherry pick verses from one John, this sounds so encouraging, so positive, so helpful. But if you read through this letter it has some also some very challenging things to say statements that seem to set the bar so high in fact we're not even sure we're going to get over it whoever says i know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person do not love the world or anything in the world if anyone loves the world love from the father is not in them no one who's been born of god will continue to sin Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. You read some of those sentences and you feel some of the challenge that John sets before us as his readers. See, when I read those kinds of sentences from John, I'm left feeling like I'm not doing that well at all. I'm left asking myself, am I really going to get a pass mark from John? It's hard not to take John's letter at face value and come away discouraged and disappointed with my Christian life, even wondering if I'm a Christian at all. Which is kind of ironic because a number of times John says, He's writing to encourage believers and help them feel confident and assured in their faith. Uh, John uses the phrase, I write or I'm writing, about a dozen times. And nearly every time, the reason he gives is so he wants to build up and strengthen and reassure these Christians. You see, when our reading experience doesn't match the author's declared intentions, then something's wrong. Either John doesn't know what he's doing... Or we're reading him in the wrong way. And I think the problem's at our end, not with John. Like all New Testament letters, John is responding to a situation. Uh, He's addressing a particular problem. And we have to read and understand this letter in that context. Uh, What's happened is there's been a bust-up in the church or churches that John writes to. Some people have left the church. Oh, they haven't left because they've given up on Christian faith. No, they've left because they think the church isn't good enough. It's not Christian enough. Those who've departed are confidently talking about their superior intimacy with God, their greater knowledge of Christ, their enriched spirituality. These aren't people who've drifted away indifferent to the things of God. No, they claim that they are pressing on in the faith. And they can't, and they won't be held back by a church filled with so called Christians who are weak and soft and foolish in their faith. And so they've left. Now, how do you feel if you're one of the ones who stayed, who got left behind? Uh, Surely there are doubts and uncertainty and questions. Are we really right? Are they really wrong? I mean, they're so impressive, and I can see my own weaknesses. Perhaps they are right. Perhaps I should join them, follow them. Have we really understood the gospel? I mean, their version of the faith is so compelling, so attractive. It's tough to be left behind. It's tough to hold on to your convictions when those who are standing with you have said, no, no, you've got it wrong. It's tough to keep going when you're a despised and rejected minority. It's tough when the pressure is coming from inside the church. Well, this letter from John is aimed at reassuring the church. This letter is for the minority, for the few, for those who stayed, who've stood their ground. Chapter 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they would belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. And on down to verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. See, John's writing to renew and encourage those who've remained in the church and who are feeling battered and bruised. And John's writing to reveal and expose those who've left the church and are feeling bigger and better. And what we have to realize as readers of this letter is that John isn't just talking about those departers in the second half of chapter 2. Those who have left are in view throughout the whole letter. That's his argument. Again and again, John writes about those who've left, and then he turns to those who've remained. He writes about their faulty doctrine, and then he speaks about true doctrine. He writes about their disobedient lives, and then he speaks of faithful living. He writes about their hatred of the believers, And then he speaks about real love. John's whole purpose in writing is to refute the claims of those who've left and to restore the confidence of those who've remained. And that strategy is in play from the very first sentence of this letter. In the opening sentences, John is defending his apostleship. Now, There might be some people in the church claiming a superior experience, a greater knowledge of God. Well, the apostle John can say, now he was there. He saw and heard and touched the Lord Jesus. John was there at the beginning. John was commissioned by Christ. You can't have a greater experience and knowledge than John had. If you want the truth of the gospel, stick with the apostles, not the mystical claims of some supposed super saints. And what John does in this letter is explore a few key areas Central to the gospel, central to true Christianity. John says, let's think about these super-Christians. What's their view of sin and forgiveness? What do they really believe about the Lord Jesus? What kind of lives do they live? Godly, obedient lives? How do they treat people? Do they love Christian people? And all through this letter, John has a look at these departers and what they claimed and believed and did. And then he points his readers back to the gospel and the truth and faithful Christian living. That's his strategy. And first up, he says, let's think about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. And so chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John says that he's passing on the message that he and the other apostles heard from him, Jesus, The message that Jesus gave the apostles has been declared to these first Christians. It doesn't get any more straight line than that. Jesus, the apostles, Christian believers. And John's 11-word summary of the message, God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. Lots of ways that that metaphor of light uh, can be applied to God, a light that explains and makes things clear, a light that guides and directs. But in this context... It's a description of God's moral purity, His absolute holiness, His complete goodness. There's no darkness to God at all, no duplicity, no corruption, no evil. God is light. You see, when you start redefining sin, as we'll see in a moment, you can only do so by, well, shrinking God, by presenting Him as indifferent to sin or not that bothered by it. By allowing a little bit of grey into God's nature. You can't minimize sin if God is blisteringly holy. If God is intensely pure. If God is blindingly morally clean. That is, if God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. If that's what God is like, what must his people be like? Well, to answer that, John does two things. Uh, Firstly, he makes clear that the claims of the departed are false claims. And secondly, he encourages those who've remained that they really do know this holy God. He makes clear the false and he makes clear the truth. Uh, John, all through this letter, seems particularly uh, fond of threes. Uh, Collections of sayings or ideas or questions or statements that come in threes. And that's what we have here at the beginning. So uh, we have three false claims and their consequences and three true promises and their consequences. Firstly, the three false claims and their consequences. Here's what the departers appear to be claiming. Verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned. Now, when John uses the little clusters of three, it seems like the first one's like the a header, uh, and then the following two unpack and explain that headline. Claiming to have fellowship while walking in darkness. Well, John, what, what, do I, what do you mean by walking in the darkness? What I mean, says John, is claiming we have no sin, claiming we've not sinned. That's what I mean by walking in the darkness. And the problem in this little group of three is claiming fellowship with God while downplaying or denying sin. That, says John, is what living in darkness looks like. It's not exactly clear how their logic works so that they could say that they were free of sin. Perhaps they were claiming they had a superior spiritual insight, their greater knowledge of God that led them to a place where look, they're no longer troubled by sin. Perhaps it's not that they deny the reality of sin. Yes, there is sin, but, but that's the weakness of lesser Christians. But now we've developed and matured, we're free from sin's grip. What does John say about that? Not only is it an example of walking in the darkness, it's also a flat-out lie. Verse 6, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Put them together. Lying to others... Lying to ourselves and calling God a liar. John is clarifying what is false here. And we need him to. Because it's always very demoralizing for the true believer to be confronted by someone who claims complete victory over sin. It's very unsettling. It's disturbing because that's what the true believer longs for. To be finally free from sin nothing is surer for the true christian that they long to be completely finished with sin but you know you are not free of sin yet and ironically that frustration that disappointment that wrestling with a sin is a sure sign of spiritual life a strong indicator that someone actually has been born again See, in the past, you might not have been troubled much by uh, your character flaws, your dishonest tendencies, your coarse language, your selfishness, your lust, your vindictiveness. Of course, there were occasions when you regretted your reactions. You got caught, you went too far, somebody got hurt or offended. You felt a bit guilty then. Even living in the darkness, you can see some of your major imperfections. But to become a Christian is to move into the light. And now you see every tiny flaw, every crooked line, every distortion. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that I see less sin in my life. No, actually, it's the exact opposite. Living in the light means I see how much greater my sin problem is. I see more sin in my life. And that can be overwhelming, deeply discouraging, not just for new Christians, But perhaps for people who have been Christians for decades. See, when they make some spiritual progress and clear some big sins away, they discover that small sins were hiding behind the big ones. It's a lifelong project of battling sin, fighting sin, wrestling against sin. And then someone comes along and says, I've won the battle. The fight is over for me. I don't need to wrestle with sin anymore. I'm living the victorious Christian life, and you can too. That's confronting. That's challenging. That invitation for the sincere Christian who is struggling with their own sins. See, these promises of complete victory over sin, these claims of having moved past sin, this elite group who see themselves as advanced above normal Christians, They keep reappearing in church life. And when you meet these people, it's tempting to think, well, I can't possibly be a real Christian. Can I? I mean, I haven't got what they've got. I I wish I did. I wish I had what they've got. But John tells us what they've really got is a complete framework made up of lies and self-deception that they've bought into. And the tragedy is that it's not a passport to spiritual freedom. No, rather spiritual torment. Because it's not true. It's not real. J.I. Packer talks about being a university student when one of these waves passed through the church, promising a state of sustained victory over sin. Just yield, surrender, consecrate your life to God. So he did. But it didn't work. He was still troubled by his sins and his temptations. He was still... Trying, He describes it like trying to walk through a brick wall, just couldn't do it. Only now there's this added spiritual turmoil. Am I not good enough? Why does it work for them but not for me? And all he could do was repeatedly reconsecrate himself, scraping the inside of his psyche till it was bruised and sore in order to track down still unyielded things by which the blessing was perhaps being blocked. His sense of continually missing the bus plus his perplexity as to the reason he was missing it became painful to live with like a veruca or a stone in your shoe that makes you wince with every step you take. See, it doesn't matter how bold the claims are how shiny the wrapper if it's a system made up of lies and self-deception it won't work and that painful reality will make itself clear in the end. They might look spiritual But denying that sin is still at work in your life, that's walking in the darkness. Are you going to move off and follow the impressive sounding ones when they come your way? Or are you going to remain with the apostles and the Bible's true assessment? That's not an easy call to make because that's not going to feel like a clear-cut black and white decision. There'll be tinges of doubt and uncertainty. Three false claims and their consequences. Three true promises and their consequences. Here's reality for Christian believers, says John. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Verse 9, if we confess our sins. Chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin. Again, I take a little cluster of three, uh, starting with a headline idea and the other two kind of unpack it. Walking in the light as here's in the light? What do you mean by that, John? Well, walking in the light is characterized by confessing our sins and knowing that we will sin even though we don't want to. See, the people who walk in darkness deny their sins, but the people who walk in light acknowledge sin and recognize it will be an ongoing reality in the life of the believer. We might naturally associate walking in the light with the absence of sin. Now, later in this letter, there is transforming power in walking in the light. There is hope. But John says for believers now, what goes with walking in the light is not absence of sin, but rather awareness of it. See, while Christians live in this dark age, they walk in the light. And what they discover when the light shines on them is that sin is at work in their lives. Think back a year. Are you less sinful now than you were a year ago? Do you think you're doing better now than you were a year ago? Oh, you might have pushed some sins aside, but have new ones grown up and taken their place? Are you less free from the battle against sin than you were a year ago? This tension, this struggle is what life is like for Christian believers who live in a dark world but walk in the light. Being in the light means that we become aware of what we're really like. In this dark age, even though we know that the darkness is passing away, a true believer is not a person in whom there is no darkness at all. Rather, into our dark life, the light has begun to shine. And therefore, a true believer's life is characterized not by the absence of sin, but by the painful awareness of its presence, and therefore the ongoing need of confession and forgiveness. That should be wonderfully reassuring to true Christian people. We are not pretending that sin is not real. We're not playing make-believe that we never sin. Of sin? Our Christian believers have clear and concrete responses confession and forgiveness. See, you know that you are in the light when you begin to see how sinful you are, and you know it needs confessing and forgiving. Now, to confess your sins is firstly to agree with God about your sins. If God calls your words or your thoughts or your actions sin, then in confession, you agree with his assessment. You align yourself with his verdict about your conduct. Call it for what it is. Now, secondly, confession is an admission of guilt, of culpability. You are responsible. Oh, despite whatever mitigating circumstances there might be, take responsibility. Own your sin. Admit your guilt. Third, Confession, while acknowledging the wrong, is also a determination to do what's right in the future. That is an attitude of repentance as part of confession. All our sin will be confessed to God. Some of our sins will also be confessed to those we've hurt or offended. We'll need their forgiveness as well. See, Christian people shouldn't be surprised by sins, their own or anyone else's. We know what to do with it. And what happens for those admitting and confessing their sins to God? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2 verse 1, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, these statements go together. How can God be just and forgive sins? God justly forgives sins because of Jesus, the righteous one. He's died to turn away God's wrath through his sacrificial death. In the same way that our sins bring us into a position of real moral guilt before God, so also because of Jesus' death, the forgiveness he grants... Brings us into a position of real moral freedom from our guilt. Our moral debt is paid. Our spiritual guilt has been atoned for. There is real freedom. Another movie, Amazing Grace, 2006, a few years back. It's about William Wilberforce and his quest to bring about the abolition of slavery. And one of his advisors and mentors is John Newton. The author of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Now, when we see John Newton in this movie, uh, he's now an Anglican minister, but he was once a captain of a slave trading ship responsible for transporting 20,000 slaves. And in every scene of the movie, Newton is presented as the guilty Remorseful slave trader, inconsolable in his grief, doing penance. He's dressed in sackcloth, he's mopping the church floor. But if you read any of the biographies about Newton, that wasn't the picture of the man after he came to Christ. His experience of forgiveness through Christ was real and tangible. He was set free from his true moral guilt. Not for a minute did he deny his past, but through Christ, he was no longer imprisoned by his past. The blood of Jesus, verse 7, his son purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, when we walk in the light, We don't hide our sin. No, no. We come to our Saviour as sinners and receive the forgiveness and the cleansing he promises. In this dark world, though it is passing, the real believer continues to feel the need of an advocate with the Father. Advocates become a sort of technical term of a lawyer or a barrister for us, but but the idea that John, when John uses it, is someone of standing and reputation who, who speaks on our behalf, Someone who comes to our defense as a friend or a benefactor. Someone who can resolve and address an accusation. See, Jesus Christ continues to represent us, to speak for us, to apply on our behalf all the benefits of the cross. Jesus Christ says these sins have been paid for through his sacrificial death. Now, the advanced Christians, the superior believers who who claim to be beyond the reach of sin, they saw themselves as the elite, as the special, as a select group. But John says that everyone needs their sins atoned for. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not just for the elite and the special, but for the whole world, for all believers wherever they are. See, what does it mean if I say that I don't have sin at work in my life? If I claim to have no trouble with sin, then I'm saying that actually I don't need the mediation of Jesus that John says is happening right now. I don't need Jesus advocating for me before the Father today in heaven. I don't need Jesus applying the ongoing benefits of the cross to my life today. While this dark world remains, the problem of sin remains as an active force in the life of the Christian believer. And it's a sign of being in the light that you acknowledge that to be true. Well, while this dark world remains, serious questions need to be asked about the person who claims an unusual freedom from sin. Let me tell you how this freedom from sin teaching is at work today, right now. It's at work now through preaching and teaching that moves us on from the cross of Christ's death for our sins the cross is the starting line they'll say but but we've got to move on to other things so a couple of invitations come to the pastors of Hastings Baptist Church last year uh, the first is to join with other local pastors and listen to a New Zealand preacher from a big city church so we listened to a YouTube sermon from this guy yeah, pretty much selected at random the bit that caught our attention uh, he's urging his listeners ask God for more say to God, you gave me a field, now give me springs. You gave us a church of 6,000, now give us 60,000. You gave me salvation, now bless me with a car. I start with the cross of Christ, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, but let's move on from that. Bless me with a car, Second invitation, uh, an overseas preacher coming to bring a supernatural encounter to Pettigrew Arena last year, apparently coming back. Uh, with the wonders of the internet, I can go and listen. Pretty much a sermon at random. It's all about miraculous healing. But then, in this video clip, he criticizes other churches. What can they offer the blind or the lame or the deaf if they don't do Miracles. They have nothing to offer these people unless they can heal them. Makes me think about the paralyzed man carried by uh, his friends to Jesus. And what does Jesus do for him? Son, your sins are forgiven. It's only when the Pharisees object to Jesus' claim to forgive sins that Jesus responds, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he was healed. But we'd have to say that the healing of his body was merely a sign of the greater miracle, the forgiveness of sins. I can't promise anyone a miraculous healing. But I can promise everyone that their sins will be forgiven by coming to the Lord Jesus with faith and repentance. Right here, right now. You see, one way to bypass sin and Christ's atoning sacrifice, just put the focus somewhere else. Shine all the lights over there. Put all the attention and effort into that, into somewhere else. And it's not just the extremes that I can find on the internet. Or It's it's easy for that focus to be shifted onto the issues that attract us. Parenting, work, marriage, all these things. You see, those issues, they spin off the hub. But if you're reading a book and there is no connection between marriage and the cross, between parenting and the cross, between work and the cross the focus has shifted away. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light doesn't mean that we are without sin. Rather, it means we deal with sin. We don't hide it, we confess it and we look to Jesus to deal with it. We don't live in the shadows trying to conceal our sin or to pretend that we are without guilt. No, our hope is in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you as those who have failed. We are those who know moral guilt in our lives. You've given us your word. You've given us your commands. You've illustrated and exampled how it is we are to live for you how we are to think, how we are to speak and we've failed we've been disobedient we've dishonoured you we've denied your word we are sinners we are guilty but if we confess our sins You are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We put our hope in you, our great advocate with the Father. You are our atoning sacrifice and we trust in you this day. Amen.